This is the Humans of Gaming Podcast, an open and honest conversation about games, life, and belief. Hello and welcome to Humans of Gaming. I'm your host, one of your hosts, Drew Dixon. I'm the chief content nerd at Love Thy Nerd and co-host of this podcast. I'm here with Chris Gwaltney, who's my co-host. Hey, Chris. Hey. I'm the uh, chief executive nerd. We have super cool titles. Yep. I love thy nerd. And right. I'm finally back. I feel like I've missed a few podcasts here. You have. You have. You, you missed me. Uh, a little. Yeah. A little bit, eh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, we have a super special guest, and that is Scott Rogers. Hey, Scott. Hello, guys. What title do I get? Uh, what title do you want? I don't know. I'm I'm a pretty I'm a pretty long-standing nerd. So, but Chris has already taken that. Uh, chief what? long-standing nerd. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Scott, uh, people would know you from a lot of things. Yeah. Um, most recently, you released a really cool party game uh, where you draw things with color swatches called Pantone. Yeah, Pantone uh, the game through my buddies then- at Cryptozoic Entertainment. Yeah, and then before that, you did another board game called uh, Ray Guns and Rocket Ships. And then I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but you have a long history in video game design as well. well how would you frame right. yourself like what people might know you from? Um, game design in general, I think, is a good start. Yeah, I, I've worked for almost 25 years in console or what they call AAA game development, uh, starting all the way back in the 16-bit days. Um, I'm also moderately well-known for a book on video game design that I've written called Level Up, The Guide to Great Video Game Design. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm I'm kind of moving uh, towards... I, I've always loved board games, and so uh, I finally just got around to making them. And kind of the, the climate of the board gaming industry is now at a place where it's a lot easier for new game designers to get their works out into the world. And so yeah. I took advantage of that. Nice. So what, I'm curious, what would be something people might have heard of that you worked on in the 16-bit era? Oh, a 16-bit? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> I worked on the uh, Demolition Man video game, the one based yeah. on the uh, <laughs> Sylvester Stallone uh, movie. Gosh, I uh, love I also that movie. Oh. Yeah, the movie's awesome, actually. Um, it's it. I don't know if it holds up very well, but it's still pretty good. Yeah. Um, I did a lot of sports games. Probably the most well-known was Quarterback Club. Uh, And then I did like ESPN Baseball Tonight and ESPN Hockey Tonight and Dick Vitale's Basketball Baby. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And then then a few other um, entertainment-related ones to some kind of – actually, I did do the official – 1980, no, not 80, I'm not that old, uh, 1990 something Olympics game that featured this little weird mascot character called Izzy. He looked kind of like a, a blue soft serve ice cream or something. <laughs> That's great. That's cool. So, yeah, then, that, was my, that was my start in the industry was doing those 16-bit games, as, mo- mostly as an artist, actually. Huh. Okay. So your start was in, in, in art then, mostly. Yeah, yeah. For video games, yes. Okay, cool. And then I think you were telling me you worked on like the original God of War and I did. What what else? Yeah, I worked on the original God of War uh, over at Sony Santa Monica Studios. And And what was your role on that? 
Oh, game designer. Um, okay. I did the first level of the game, which is the Hydra. Uh, I did all the bosses, and I did something that, um, if you finish the game, uh, was called the Challenge of the Gods. It was kind of a, a puzzly type of. Um, uh, it was just like you you kind of tested out your skills. Yeah. That's cool. What was it like designing, working on that game? Because I feel like it's a really iconic game of that era that sort of like pushed a lot of boundaries in some yeah, ways, or totally. at least just perceived that way. Yeah, it um it was a it, a it's it was a great game for my resume, um but it was a really I worked on it for about a year. Uh, it had been going for like three or four years when I got to it. It'd been going for a long time, so yeah. it was kind of in its um uh, you know, final descent, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. and they brought me in because they had needed some help and they were feeling a little burnt out. And so they wanted some, some, you know, fresh blood to kind of come in and reinvigorate things. And, um, and it, the team is amazing. I mean, some of them are, I think still actually working on the, the God of War game, uh, at least the new yeah. one that came out the whole series. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I went in with the, um, the really the first level was the thing they needed help on because it's really important to have a good strong start in yeah. anything, be it a, a video game or a movie or a comic book or something like that. And so um, I was known for my level design, and I was known particularly for boss fights. I had made a lot of them by that point in my career, and uh, and so they brought me in specifically for those two things, and I I helped a lot with. Um, the fellow who now who now ran the last game, he was like an animator uh, on the game, like he was doing yeah. the combat. And him and I used to talk a lot about combat, and I kind of taught him some tricks from games that I had worked on. And so it's really fun to see these guys kind of move up in the world uh, yeah. and become these directors. Which, of course, makes me wonder what the heck did I do wrong in my career, but uh, <laughs> yeah. well... Um, I emailed him, I think, a while back, like begging him to come on this podcast. So um, I'm blanking on his name at the moment. Corey Balrog. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's an so, interesting cat. Uh, I don't know. So how Corey, much... if you're listening to this, come on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Corey, if you're not listening to us, tack with you. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, so yeah, I, I worked on that for about a year. Um, but I have to admit, it was kind of a punishing schedule. Uh this was in the days before the EA spouse event, uh, where kind of the curtain was torn away from the industry, showing how poorly most publishers and developers treated their staff. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, it was kind of like 16-hour days, and I had a young son who was about three months when I started, and I never saw him. And uh, after mm-hmm. about a year of that, I said, okay, kind of enough is enough, and I got to find something that's a little more conducive to my health and mental welfare. Right. Yeah, totally. So you were about to share some other uh, games than that you worked on it before yeah. I asked about God of War. Yeah. So I also, um, I worked for Namco and I did the Pac-Man world game and there was a Miss Pac-Man game and a, a whole series called the Namco museum. And I even did, uh, got to fly to Japan to this one. Uh, to work on the original uh, Soul Blade, which eventually became Soul Calibur. Oh yeah. Oh cool. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, and then I worked for Capcom uh, for about five years or so, and I did a couple of games called Maximo, and, mm-hmm. and a sequel for that called uh, The Army of Zin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those were good action games. A lot of fun to work on those. Uh, yeah, I remember then, those. Yeah, and then after uh, Sony. 
I worked for the publisher THQ for many years, and I did a whole bunch of different games, lots and lots of games for them, over over 50 titles, uh, including uh, Darksiders and Drawn to Life and Warhammer 40K and Red Faction and even a lot of kids, a lot of SpongeBob SquarePants and Danny Phantom and and even some um, like Zoe 101 and some other garbage mm-hmm. I'd rather forget. <laughs> hey, one there... man's trash is another's treasure. No, <laughs> this right. was all this was all trash. There was maybe <laughs> maybe maybe one man's trash is another like eight year old girl's treasure. Maybe yeah, there you go. But, I, but I've not yeah. I've not no women have come forth to say. Oh my God, my childhood was playing these games and, you know, I've, I've not met that yet. So if any women are <laughs> well, out there yeah, listening yeah. and you uh, have played like Zoe 101 or Drake and Josh or uh, Bratz, <laughs> I did a lot of Bratz oh, games. Oh yeah. Yeah. Good, that's my the man. good stuff, man. That's, I'll tell you, you want to be creatively challenged as a game designer. You be a 40 year old man trying to think of what would be a good game for eight-year-old girls that's so that is a heck of a design challenge god bless you (laughs) it's the lord's work (laughs) (laughs) sounds like that could lead to some kind of like horcrux situation yeah yeah or at least some sort of strange uh bipolar disorder (laughs) one or the other yeah i'm just kidding um so i well i will say that i remember playing a lot of red faction and that was a pretty sweet game that was a great game yeah you could just blow like blow holes in the sides of things and yeah the the one for uh, I think it was for the PS3 I think or four I forget which probably PS3 was pretty spectacular you could pretty much blow up almost anything in that game yeah we need more you know destructible environments in games bring it well, back the, the problem is there are a lot of work right because as yeah. a game designer you're trying to build locations and uh, interesting interactions with things for the players to do but if the player can just blow it up as an alternative it makes it it makes it really hard to design uh, things for so god bless them for god bless them for doing it but you'll also notice that the sequel or not really a sequel but the next game in the series uh didn't have as much freeform blowing up of stuff and i think it was because the developers just realized what a big headache it ended up being yeah, we really want you to actually like find this enemy encounter <laughs> before you blow up the building that they're or, in. <laughs> or even like walk down this hallway rather than just blow it all up. Right, right, yeah. We'd like you to see this building that we designed. Right. Because uh, we put a lot of thought into it. You yeah. should actually walk in there. Right. Um, yeah, no, that's cool. Is there a game that stands out to you in your catalog that's like, this is this one I'm really proud of, or I did this in this game that's sort of like something you're really happy with? Um, yeah, my, my favorite, I think to design and like, I'm happy with the end result, uh, was the second Maximo game, uh, called Maximo versus army of Zinn. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I liked about it was a few things. One, we, the first Maximo game was really well received, but it also was very polarizing. And so some players hated it because they thought it was super hard and some p- players loved it because it was super hard. Yeah. And the thing that I learned as a game designer was the difference between difficult and challenging and difficult is, uh, where you give the player pain, uh, versus challenging, which rewards the player's effort. 
And yeah. and you know, many, it's just this kind of a trap that young game designers fall into, which is the I want to crush the player syndrome. And mm-hmm. I understand where that comes from, having made several games that, that do this. But I, I had an epiphany after uh, Maximo, and that was that it's ultimately better for the player to be able to play and finish your game than to throw down the controller in anger. And partially, it's a business decision because you want these people to be your continuing customers. Because my yeah. goal as a game designer is to keep working as a game designer. Because <laughs> being a game professional game designer is an awesome job. So I want to keep that awesome job rolling. Uh, and I don't want to tick off all of my players. Uh, so if I make something that they end up loving, they will happily buy my next game. So my, my mantra became can't switched from crushing the player to love thy player. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I can dig that. That sounds familiar. But I also had, I also had a lot of fun with Maximo. It was, um, there was a lot of really fun visual design and characters. And I got to write the flesh out the story further and, and kind of created some, the, the bad guys were kind of steampunky and this was back in the early two thousands. So mm-hmm. steampunk was, Still a very, very fringy thing at that point. Just picking up steam. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, Just picking up steam. <laughs> very good. I, I got that. And uh, and so I uh, I wanted to inject some of that uh, vibe into the game. Um, I don't know if anybody really caught that or even care, but uh, in my mind, I was, uh, I was an early adapter of steampunk. And uh, so at some point, you, you left the digital realm behind and made video games. And earlier you said it was because you had always been into board games and just said, I'm going to, I'm going to go do this. Uh, right. Well, I, I had a, it, I had a transition in between actually oh, okay. uh, from, okay. from THQ to board games. Uh, well, the board gaming kind of happened at THQ, but were put on hold because of my job after THQ. So at, at THQ, I wanted to make, um, I wanted to make this video game where you were characters in a spaceship and you're flying through kind of a big open area of outer space and you could do all types of things inside the spaceship and then you could jump out of the spaceship and do things in outer space like mine asteroids or salvage from wrecked spaceships or whatever. And then you could kind of fight your way onto like space pirate ships that would show up and try to steal the loot from you and all that. So I had kind of this grand vision of kind of transitioning seamlessly from one location to the other. And when I pitched it to my managers at THQ, they're like, we don't have the technology to do this. This is just not feasible. Um, and I'm like, why? It's, it's no different than an open world. And they're like, no, nah, the things you're talking about just really aren't technically possible yet, you know. Um, and so, so I became a little discouraged uh, for that design. And I was sitting around in my office one day. And I always kept this picture kind of on the wall of my office that remind me of that game just so I wouldn't forget about it. And I was thinking about how could I make this game but not have to rely on this big company or even programmers or, um, you know, artists or any of Mm -hmm. these other – because it takes a lot of people to make a video game, particularly one that's of a massive scope. And I I was trying to cut out the middleman. I wanted to make this thing real, uh, but I – I didn't have the money or the resources to, to do it as a video game. And I, because I had grown up playing board games, I said, Oh, of course a board game would be the perfect way 
for me to do this. Um, however, around that time, I, um, I took a job with Disney uh, as an Imagineer, which uh, okay. essentially means I was making things for the theme parks. And my, yeah. and my emphasis was on making games for Disneyland. I, I essentially was the game designer of Disneyland. And uh, we built all types of prototypes and we um, uh, tested a bunch of things. Um, some of them actually, yeah, it was fantastic. It was an amazing yeah. job. Uh, and, uh, but the thing with Disney is that when you work on something while you're working for Disney, they want to own it. Yeah. So I didn't yeah. want them, I didn't want them to have a piece of this. So I just kind of shelved it for the time being. Um, yeah. but then, but then, uh, and I suppose uh, several, you're probably like contractually obligated not to be doing your own thing while you're working with Disney. Well, it depends on, it depends on what the thing is. But no matter what you're doing, you have to get you have to kind of go through this panel of lawyers because I talked to them actually about some other projects, uh, so writing some books, and I had yeah. to get I had to pass through like this. Oh my god, it was like this battery of lawyers that you know <laughs> they yeah. interrogated me about what's this going to be about and how's this you know and you know it was on a topic that had nothing to do with Disney, but still they needed to know everything because of course you're a representative of their company. And they don't, right. they've worked very hard to keep a good reputation. So, and I don't blame them. It's, you know, Disney is a, is a family friendly, uh, you think, you know, it's one of the first things people think of when you think of family friendly, right? Entertainment. Yeah. So, yeah. so they, they're, it's right for them to protect it. And so I didn't want to jeopardize that, but I also didn't want to jeopardize my idea. So I just kind of put it on hold for a while. That's cool. So how did you, how did you decide to finally like, um, you know, bite the bullet and, uh, I got I got program. cancer. <laughs> oh gosh! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. When I was working at I was working at Disney for a few years, and in 2013, uh, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a, mm -hmm. a, a immune system cancer. And yeah. so uh, they immediately I had to start chemotherapy. Uh, and so uh, Disney, God bless them, they have a wonderful healthcare program. So I was able to, you know, take time off and and get chemotherapy and recover, but it was about eight months. And this was a long, yeah. it was a long time to yeah. go without, you know, anything to do other than feeling sick, and because um, the chemo is worse than the cancer, in my opinion. The the cancer, mm -hmm. I kind of, I I noticed it, but it wasn't as bad as uh, every two weeks getting chemicals pumped through your system. Sure. Um, but but in that time, I was like, well, I kind of want to uh, do some projects that I had kind of put on hold since I started at Disney. And one of them was a comic book, uh, but the other was this board game, which was Ray Guns and Rocket Chips. And so I kind of dusted off the design and I kind of put went to work in earnest on it. Uh, and a nice thing about it was it kind of, um, the, the timing of it was good because 3D printing was just starting to be a thing. And because of mm. my work, I worked in the R&D department at Disney and that's like they have every technology known to mankind there. Yeah. And so I knew about 3D printing and I knew how it worked and all that. And I found a company uh, in New York that did 3D prints of, of 3D models. So they were able to create prototypes of my miniatures for the game. So now kind of having these miniatures, it, it, for me, when I design things, I like to have a little bit of a touchstone. And the miniatures yeah. were that touchstone for me. So rather than using repurposed Heroclix figures... Uh, I was now using my own designs, and I found that inspiring to keep working on the game and, and get it to a point where then I could 
get it in front of a publisher and say, look, this is kind of what it's supposed to be like. And they don't have to imagine what it really is going to be like. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. And what, like, give me, what's the kind of quick pitch on how Ray Guns and Rocket Ships works? Uh, Ray Guns and Rocket Ships is a, um, a skirmish game for two to four players set in a 1930s sci-fi pulp universe. Uh, you play a lot of angry, uh, different factions of space people. I call them planeteers. Uh, and we've got kind of the four cardinal races. We have humans called Astro Rangers. We have star pirates. We have Zard, which are lizard men. And then we have the Blarg, which are Cyclopean <laughs> brains on mechanical pants. <laughs> Uh, yeah. and, and it plays a lot like X-Wing, uh, where you're flying around uh, giant ships. You pre-program in moves, a bit like RoboRally. Uh, but then you move the crew inside the ships, kind of like the video game FTL. Uh, but then you can jump out into outer space and do things, and then you can cut your way aboard the enemy ships and have uh, combat. And then you, and there's a whole bunch of campaigns in there, so a bunch of different scenarios. There are... Um, uh, I, I say that between the different factions and then there's captain characters that have, there's different types of captains. So you can play the core game at least eight times and never have the same experience. Uh, but then the campaign book has like another 10 scenarios in it. So you can play the game about 18 times and never have the same game. And I yeah. call that value. <laughs> yeah. Me cool. too. Dude, the miniatures look great. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah, I, I really love them. I'm very pleased with how it all turned out. And then Pantone is kind of one of those, uh, like, was it Monty Python, where they would say, and now for something completely different. Yeah, that from? yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Pantone is nothing like Ray Guns and Rocket Ships. <laughs> no, not at all. It's a complete polar opposite. Yeah. So uh, you take color swatches. You get, like, a word that's usually a character, right? It's, it's, it's like always a, a character. Yeah, always a character. Generally, from something nerdy or geeky or well, to be honest, pop, pop culturey, right? So what's really funny is people keep saying that they go, oh, "It's from." Pop. I mean, they are pop culture characters. They're characters from movies and books and video games and and uh, comic books. But the thing is, so two things: one, when I tested the game, I put it in front of players ranging from seven to seventy-five, and I always got at least a seventy-five su- success rate of like, "Oh, I know who this is." And yeah. like some recent reviewers, I will not mention any names, Tom Vassell, were <laughs> like, oh, this, this game skews so young, but it isn't. There's like, you know, Mickey Mouse is a 100-year-old character, and, you know, Batman right. is almost an 80-year-old character, and uh-huh. Hellboy is yeah. a 40-year-old character. You know I mean? Like, the, it, it's not all, it's not like, you know, last week's, you know, new hotness. There was a lot of kind of thought and care put into who these characters mm-hmm. are because generally they're people that people that players will know. And, you know, to, to counter that, if you don't know who it is, we have a rule that says, all right, throw out a card and, and you, you don't use it if you don't know yeah. who it is. Right. So Tom yeah, Vassell, I, you have no excuse. <laughs> <laughs> Take that Tom. Take that. Just kidding. I'm sure you're a nice guy. He is a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. And I, th- I actually kind of like that about it because, you know, um, you would see the different ways that um, people from different generations would illustrate things too. Like, you know, someone from a previous generation kind of, or an older generation than me might think of Batman as this, you know, 
blue and yellow character. Yep. Um, whereas uh, people from a younger generation think of, you know, the dark, uh, the dark Knight trilogy and that, and that's yeah. a lot darker and grimier, you know? Right. Yeah. And, well, and matter really, of fact, it, it was that instance I was playing with a friend and it was exactly Batman that made me realize I was onto something cool with the game. Cause yeah. I, I'm older and I built blue and yellow and gray Batman and he looked at me like very confused and I went, oh, no, no, wait a minute. And I, I exchanged the blue and the gray with two blacks and he went, oh, that's Batman. There's <laughs> <laughs> just a bunch of black. Oh, it's yeah, Batman. It was, all, it was it. just all black and that was it. Yeah, but that's what I love the most about the game is that we all carry these different mental images inside of us. And that's part of the fun is that uh-huh. you, you kind of learn a little bit about the person that's making it um, as, as you uh, play the game because everybody's perception is so different. Yeah. Drew had some uh, controversy at Gen Con, I think, playing Pantone with Boba Fett, right? Yeah, Boba Fett. Yeah. I just in my head, I'm like a I'm not like a mega fan, but I'm a Star Wars fan. Okay, Uh, I know. what I feel like I know what Boba Fett looks like, (laughs) but, you know, and also like the game encourages you to it tells you you can like the instructions, I believe, tell you you can look at your phone before you decide how you're going to. You're going to illustrate something. Actually, I don't know if the instructions do that because I I consider that cheating when I. Oh, you do. Oh, oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. I feel like the guy from Cryptozoic. Oh, <laughs> all right. Throw, throw Cryptozoic under the bus. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. I mean, I always say this about board games. Uh, once you buy it, I'm not included in the box, so you can play it however right. you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. So don't don't let my rules stop you from playing the game. Yeah, we we around our table anyway. We had told people, hey, you can. Someone may may not have been. I don't want to throw. I don't even know his name, but it may not have been the guy from Cryptozoic. But that's what, how we were playing. And so I even looked at a photo of him online, and it looked to me like Boba Fett's mask was gray. Right. And then every but everybody around the table was like what in the world is this? They did not get it. And then when it was revealed, like finally somebody got it, I think, but it was like, when they found out it was Boba Fett, they were like, his, his mask is forest green. <laughs> yeah. Not I, even uh, green forest green. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's Pantone. You got to know exactly what color it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you don't like you, you're limited to what? Um, right. Yeah. There's only, swatches. there's only 15 different colors in the game, right? Yeah. Now. So there's like um, two different greens, I think. And yeah, I like, I like green and a dark green. green. That's, yeah, you, you were you were handicapped a little. Um, yeah, I had a similar situation where I was playing with a gal, and she created something out of grays and greens, and we were all racking our brains trying to figure out what it was. And finally, she's like, "It was Optimus Prime," and we're like, "What? Optimus Prime? Blue and greens? Green on Optimus Prime?" Yeah, I, I have to admit, though, that those are some of my favorite moments in the game is when that yeah. happens, just because the person's mental image is so off base that you're like, how how did that happen? Like, yeah. it, 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 I always find it very amusing. It certainly provides for some memorable, like, uh, moments around the table, which is great. Yeah, which is great, right? That's, I mean, ultimately, yeah. that's the goal is games are these generators of good moments. And so if it does that, excellent. It's yeah, always my sure. favorite to shame people for the mistakes they make. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, gets into what we were talking about earlier about, uh, you know, I, I was I was curious to hear your thoughts on this because I think you made a um, 
a game that's like super easy to bring to the table. Right. And we were talking earlier about how we all like love board games, but we all kind of struggle to like get in a group and play them. Right. Um, and you were talking about how sometimes, um, you know, board gaming groups can be uh, kind of like not super welcoming. Sure. It's, it's, um, it can be a challenge. I think part of it has to do with the fact that now this is, this is definitely changing. I mean, it has changed already. It's not, this is a, this is a probably an out of date statement, but you know, gaming, the players that gravitate towards gaming, or at least back when I was, uh, first gaming, um, were outsiders and, um, Mm -hmm. and they weren't always the most socially adept and they weren't always the most, hygienic and they weren't always the most friendly um, because I, I I honestly think that, you know, it was escapism. It was escapism yeah. from whatever troubles they were having in the real yeah. world. And, and so as a result, uh, it's a it, gaming can be a refuge for people, which is great. I, this is one of the things I love about it. And it's one of the things why I personally was drawn towards it. But um, but now that we are living in a world where other people are saying, hey, this is awesome. I want to do this, too. Uh, that kind of behavior is no longer tolerant. Uh, it's I mean, uh, not tolerant, but it really shouldn't be tolerated um, because we the more having more people play games just always will make things better because we need mm-hmm. people to play games anyway. And it really shouldn't matter what kind of person comes to the table as long as they're a willing to abide by the rules of the game and b be pleasant. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's not a it's not a high barrier of entry we're asking for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wanted to bring it up because I think there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are like big time gamers. Sure. Um, well, it's and I think Go ahead. yeah, and I was just saying I think that uh, we. I think you're right in that there's, and maybe it's to some degree that this is some gamers view it as their hobby, as this thing that not everybody else is into. And so it's like, they're sort of experts in it and they sort of own it in a way that, you know, that maybe they think other people don't. So then now that board gaming is like this soup is growing in popularity really rapidly yeah it feels like people are stepping on their territory a little bit or something sure no that's i think you're absolutely right Uh, i i've experienced the same thing with comic books i've experienced the same thing with science fiction i've experienced the same thing with movies um where you know i went to film school in the 90s uh, late 80s early 90s and you had to go out of your way to like find like Chinese action films. I remember uh, now I went to school in Los Angeles. So it was a heck of a lot easier for me to find that stuff than say somebody in Cincinnati or, or wherever. But, Mm -hmm. um, but there was a bit of a pride. And, and I think this also comes with that uh, board gaming and, and more literary bound movies is kind of a, a, an exception unless you're in film school. But like books, sci-fi books and games and comic books, back in the early days, you had to work really hard to find interesting things because there was no mm-hmm. internet. There was no clubs. There were very few re- – there was some fanzine type stuff. But myself as a, as a kid, um, it, they, were, they were more ad- 
adult oriented. And so I had, I had this weird hang up as a kid where if something seemed too much for adults, I wouldn't dive all the way in because I'm like, well, that's for grownups. That's not for me. Right. But I still wanted to know about these things and learn about them. So so the acclimation of knowledge and the acclimation of where to find these things uh, became, I think, as part of the, for lack of a friendlier term, the nerd uh, mentality, right? Like there's a kind of an intellectualism that goes with it. And, and you're right. I think that there feel, it feels a bit toe steppy when somebody comes in, like I had a moment that I wasn't proud of, but I, I, I kind of overcame it, but I was listening to a podcast that was about Batman. And I consider myself to be a amateur Batman historian. I know a lot, (laughs) I know a lot about Batman way more than most people do. And this gal who she admitted that she was um, new to being a fan of Batman. She had only started only like a couple of years prior to her doing the podcast, but she was kind of selling herself as an authority. And for a few minutes, I got offended by that because Mm. I was, it had nothing to do with whether she was female or not, but it was just the fact of like, who is this kid who's only been a fan of Batman for a couple of years who now is saying they're an authority when I've spent my entire life reading and knowing and things about this character, you know, how dare she? But, but then Mm -hmm. I thought about it and I'm like, no, you know, she's coming at it with the enthusiasm that I came to it with when I first found out about it. But the difference is it's a lot easier for her to quickly ramp up on this information than it was. Like I had to experience it one month at a time where she can ingest almost 80 years of fiction, you know, literally in like a few months. Yeah, and, so, and so, so when I had that realization, I went, all right, cool your jets there. Ding dong. Uh, <laughs> you know, let, let other people have fun too. Right. Um, yeah. And, and so it was a nice little learning moment for me. I feel like I'm a slightly better person because of it. But that said, I, I totally understand where that mentality comes from because mm-hmm. it, it is something that people are still having trouble adjusting to. And, um, some people will, and some people won't. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that we love exclusivity too. You know, like we well, love it makes us feel special being on the inside when other people are on the outside. Sure. Yeah. And well, it's elitism. Yeah, it makes us, you know? yeah, feel unique and special. And right. I think that kind of ties into it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's, I think there's a way to, um, be that, like that not to be knowledgeable, but then I think the joy comes in sharing that knowledge. And that's yeah. that's one of the things that kind of has benefited me a lot in the fact that I've written some books on game design and I teach. Uh, and I feel that, that um, being able to share that information with other people, particularly young, inexperienced people, is a good way of kind of getting that that know-it-all jerkiness out of my system without being yeah. it's, the, it's the right context for it right it's not it's mm-hmm. not just the you're in the comic store and you start an argument about you know which issue uh the zebra batman was in but instead it's you know letting them know that this thing exists and hey you should check it out it, it was pretty cool yeah and i suppose i bring it up just because i see a little bit of like i don't know like it's not like the video game space where there's a fandom there's there's pockets of video game fandom that are like super toxic. Sure. Um, I think a lot of that, I think a lot of that though comes from skill. 
because sure. because I find that the more toxic the players are, the better they are at playing the game. Uh-huh. And um and that uh it's pride, but it's also I don't know. I mean, granted I grew up a nerd, so I'm not a huge fan of the sports ball, but uh-huh. but that toxic sportsmanship or yeah. or whatever that that you know unpleasant competition aspect of it where I'm gonna crush you you know that kind of mm-hmm. mentality I never understood that uh, that's why what drew me to D and D was it was cooperative not competitive mm-hmm. yeah and so anyway I guess I brought it up just to encourage our listeners because I think don't be jerks listeners that, yeah yeah <laughs> and and uh, but there's some of that in the board gaming space every oh yeah now and absolutely then. Like, like sort of the, this elitism or this like. Well, um, get it, get off my lawn kind of mentality well, and games think, are competitive you know, also. And some people are yeah. poor losers and, you know, they don't, they don't know how to handle that situation, mm-hmm. which is too bad. I like Go. about these, uh, like board game cafes that are popping up is, you know, my experience, most every like comic book store, like game store that I've gone to is pretty unapproachable like as a new person it's really hard to step into those and step into like pre-existing games or pre-existing groups but what i've i've only been to like a few of these board game cafes but they just seem to be a lot more approachable even just the environment the aesthetic um but i think the people as well they seem a lot more accessible for folks that aren't you know gonna play hero clicks or you know these super kind of hardcore things well i Um, i think i think some of that has to do with the transitive nature of the of the cafes which is a a restaurant or a cafe is built for a flow of people to come in and out now you'll get Mm. your regulars but for the most part the business model is based on occasional not consistency where the Mm -hmm. comic stores at least the ones that i've encountered have a, a regular group. And so now you are, um, you are kind of uh, stepping on their turf, right? Because yeah. once those people have made that space their own, they're going to do what any uh, mammal does, which is becomes highly defensive of their turf. <laughs> uh, and mm-hmm. so they're going to see you as an outsider and an interloper. And until you can prove yourself, uh, you are going to be treated hostily or at least, um, uh, coldly. So my recommendation to you, Chris, is find the biggest mammal in that place and just shove their face just right into the board. Game. Oh right. yeah. I'm going to do that. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Exactly. Or at least just crush them of your knowledge <laughs> of like dominion expansions or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I could do that. I've got <laughs> all the dominion expansions. Uh, actually I don't, I don't have nocturne or whatever the new one's called. Oh. See, I'm losing Uh-oh, it. Oh, you're, yeah, you're losing, losing Some young buck <laughs> is going to come and, and pick you up. <laughs> Somebody yeah, just yeah. just unsubscribed to the podcast because of that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even sure. I, and I even said, like, I'm not sure it's called Nocturne. I think it is. Uh-uh. But you better you better stop. double check. Put the shovel down. Yeah, you have yeah. a future future uh, Drew come in and say. <laughs> yeah, I, I need to I need to edit that out. <laughs> uh, so where'd you grow up? Oh, um, Southern uh, California, San Diego area. Um, born in San Diego, grew up in a town called Escondido, which is, uh, most known for being near the wild animal park, or actually they call it the safari park now, which I still still can't get used to that name. Um, (laughs) but then I went to school in uh, LA, Long Beach and, and Los Angeles and, uh, lived for a short while in San Jose, California, 
uh, but mm-hmm. uh, moved back to LA back in, ooh, it's almost 14 years now. So, so uh, did you grow up like, what was religion a part of your upbringing at all? What was your yeah. family like? Yeah, I, uh, I grew up in a Catholic household. Um, my, well, <laughs> my mom was Catholic. My dad was what I call basement Methodist. And I, I am, okay. and I am actually a <laughs> second. I am actually a second generation basement Methodist right now. Okay. Okay. Uh huh. I can tell you that story in a minute. But um, but I grew up going to church and Sunday school, and then um, in junior high, uh, all basement Methodist sounds kind of like a like a maybe like a cult or something. Yeah, I call it, that for it, a does, band it does sound very culty, but it's it's actually <laughs> almost the complete opposite. And I'll I'll, I'll tell you okay. that story in a second. But um, but I grew up. Uh, I went to junior high at a Lutheran school, uh, mm-hmm. and so I also was. Con- I have. I I kind of run the gamut of Western religions. Um, yeah. And then I I found out in college uh, that my father's side of the family was Jewish, but they were like the least practicing Jews you'd ever encounter. <laughs> so I kind of okay. come from this weird mish of. I have all the guilt of Catholic. I have the genetic guilt of Jew. I have the uh, kind of lackadaisicalness of Methodist and the uh, kind of not quite decided which way they want to go of Lutheranism. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so in other words, you're crushing it. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm waiting to add Buddhist and a few others to my uh, yeah. repertoire. Um, no. <laughs> But yeah, I'm, I'm charismatic. Maybe you could try some charismatic churches or something. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, yeah. Or, or yeah, exactly. Or Scientology or I don't know what. So what uh, you were getting to basement Methodist. Oh, basement Methodist. Right. So my father, when he was in high school, uh, had a group of friends that they wanted to form a club. This was like in the 50s. And they called themselves the Friars. And I don't know what the Friars did, whether they're up to no good or what. But um, yeah. but one of the members of the Friars' father was a Methodist pastor, and they said, hey, we want, can we use the basement of the church for meetings? And the pastor said, sure, as long as you all join the Methodist church. So my father joined the Methodist church <laughs> to become a, to use the basement, essentially. So when uh, my wife is Methodist, and, and we married Methodist, and so I'm I'm kind of a practicing Methodist, sort of. Um, but, uh, when we moved back down here to LA, the church that we go to, uh, they wanted to do a Halloween, uh, haunt at their, at their church. And they had this rec room that was a basement. And I'm like, oh my God, this would be like the perfect location, uh, for us to do the haunted house in the basement. And my wife was like, well, if you want to like start doing stuff at the Methodist church, you should probably become a member of the Methodist church. So I thought back to my father and how lackadaisical his religious convictions were, and I went, "Sure, I'll become a basement Methodist." So, <laughs> so I, so I built the haunted house. So I did that for many years. So I am, I consider myself a basement Methodist. So yeah. you need to start up a board gaming group and call it the Friars. Oh yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, and yeah. host so, it at the church. So you don't know what he was doing with the Friars? No, 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 no about? clue. My dad was. Uh, my dad was like a typical raised in the fifties kind of guy. So okay. it was hard to get information out of him. I was lucky. I got that story out of him. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. It could be like some secret society oh. or maybe they were just like, I think they were just trying to, they were just hanging, they were probably just hanging out. They, I don't even know yeah. if they were like drinking or anything. I think they were just, they just wanted a place to flop. You know, they they were teenage yeah. boys. All they want to do is just lay down somewhere. 
Yeah. Yeah. And they were like, hey, if we call it the Friars, we can get some church to sign off on <laughs> Right. This. Or or they could maybe make some cool jackets, like satin jackets or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you grew up in the church, but it sounds like it wasn't like necessarily something that was like a big deal. Well, I, I, I did Sunday school and the Catholics did okay. a good job of putting a fear of the apocalypse into me. Um, yeah. and then, um, uh, I was confirmed, uh, Catholic and, uh, I, um, uh, but when I went to college, uh, I started taking like comparative religion classes and, and mm-hmm. actually the one that made a big influence on me was a, uh, one of my, I was in the honors program and the gal who ran the honors program taught a class on Joseph Campbell, uh, the hero of a thousand mm-hmm. faces and, and all that. Uh, and, uh, through that class, it kind of verified my own personal thoughts about religion, which is they're all pretty much the same. Um, there's there's a few noticeable differences here and there, uh, but the general message is you know be good to each other and don't you know be a jerk to other people and and uh, you know there is some sort of higher being of some sort that uh, I just it it all felt the same to me. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of, my, my God, as it were, really is more creativity than some, I'm, I'm way past the old man in a beard phase. Sure. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. I, I've seen enough or f- kind of felt the touch of enough um, higher power of some sort that I don't discount it, whether it's you know, kind of uh, cognitive, like your conscious, or if it's kind of groupthink, or I don't know what, but I, I, I'm sure there's something out there. I, I don't call it God. I don't call it anything else. Um, I, like I said, I'm, I'm more of a fan of the of the three uh, in Christian religion. I'm more of a fan of the Holy Spirit than the other two. <laughs> oh, interesting. You pick favorites. Yeah, I do. Sorry. So well, you I mentioned mean, the, like uh... you know, God is God is mean in the Old Testament. And and to be honest, I grew up in the seventies. Jesus is a little too flaky for my taste. He seems he seems too hip, too much of a hippie. So, yeah, Jesus is my homeboy. He's got a he's got a good message. I I I get it. I I'm I'm up for it. But you know, I I much prefer the spirit. So uh, what draw like? So it sounds like there's a, a like a a spirituality there to you than that you're. Hit hitting on maybe is that is that fair to say well it's i think it ties in a lot to the notion of creativity and where does that come from and inspiration Mm -hmm. now granted there is a quote that i do like that says uh inspiration is for amateurs um you know (laughs) that the the people that sit around and go oh i hope i come up with a good idea for something Mm -hmm. i uh, i I think there's some merit to that slightly uh uh skeptical uh viewpoint um, mm-hmm. it's kind of the, it's kind of my same feeling about luck. I was having a conversation with somebody about luck the other day and there's another quote. I, unfortunately I can't attribute any of these quotes. I'm terrible about that. <laughs> but the quote was that, uh, luck is just being prepared, meeting opportunity. Like there's really no mm. such thing as luck in the form of which most people think of it as like, oh, you were lucky this happened. It was just more that this thing happened. You were ready for it. And therefore, you are able to capitalize and have a positive response from it. So I'm curious, you mentioned creativity, like being kind of a big part. 
of your thinking as it relates to God or whatever higher power, like where do you, or maybe you don't think about it or not, but like the whole, you know, Oh, this earth was created from nothing or like, where do you kind of land in some of that stuff as you're thinking through like creativity or God being creative or whatever. And I, and I think this ties in a lot to what, um, uh, Campbell talks about, which is, I feel that the, the religious doctrine, you know, the God, uh, earth was created in seven days, blah, blah, blah. I think those are all metaphors. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, who are we to know what seven days is to, to the thing that is God now yeah. is God nature is God evolution. I mean, there's a lot of compelling arguments. I don't, I don't believe that somebody or something snapped their fingers and all of a sudden everything formed uh, fully. I think there's yeah. too much evidence out there that contradicts that. Um, and, uh, and to be honest, I find that that kind of thinking is a bit naive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I view it much more as metaphorical than anything else. Yeah. There's a really interesting, um, I probably talk about him too much. I don't know if I've talked about him on this podcast yet or not, but we actually had him, uh, this guy named science Mike, um, <laughs> on our podcast probably a couple years ago or something, but he, uh, I heard him speak one time and he had this really interesting thing that he did where, you know, he's a, he's a big like evolution guy, big science guy, big, like, you know, big bang and all that stuff. And he actually goes through the, like the first, you know, chapter in Genesis and starts lining things up with like the language lining it up with like big bang and some of these different stuff. And it's pretty interesting. Like it's really cool. Um, the way that he did it, but yeah. Well, part of it is I'm married to an archaeologist, and yeah. her job every day is to kind of figure out when old things happened and where they're from. Right. And and just knowing kind of the dates of you know even common things like the 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 date of she works in you know here in Southern California, and so mm-hmm. you know how long man has been in this area completely counterdicts some of the things that I've heard maybe some more religiously extreme people talk about. So, so once again, I think that the sciences can be very compelling in providing evidence uh, that, that contradicts some of these timelines that other people might try to um, talk about. But that said, once again, I, 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 I revert back. It's, it's all metaphorical and I, I'd love to hear science mm-hmm. Mike actually, because that sounds fascinating. Yeah. He's got a podcast. You should check it out. I'd recommend yeah. it. Yeah. For it's sure. called ask science Mike. All right. <laughs> Put up a link. Science I think Mike. That, yeah. <laughs> Shout out to science Mike, not a sponsor, but as Bob would say, not yet. Um, not yet. Uh, but, uh, so in your married, how long have you been married? Uh, almost 20 years this year. Mm. Oh man. Congrats. Thank and you. you That's cool. We have kids, yeah, two two kids. And how old are they? Oh, they're teenagers, so I know a lot about kids wanting to just flop Oof. around. <laughs> that yeah. makes sense. You play uh, you play board games with them sometimes. Uh, there was a time where my daughter uh, vowed that she did not like board games, uh, uh-huh. but uh, she actually helped me create one uh, that I hope oh, cool. to do something with soon. I'm thinking about Kickstarter. I don't. I'm, I'm a very risk adverse person at heart. So uh, mm-hmm. it's taken me a long time to um, to figure out what I want to do with this. But but it was an idea that when she was about four, she came to me with a piece of paper 
And I looked at it and I said, oh, honey, what a lovely drawing. And she said, dad, it's not a drawing, it's a game. And it was a picture of a castle with a princess in a window and a prince at the bottom and a flag flying at the top of the castle. And I said, all right, tell me what the game is. And she said, oh, well, the princess to climb up the castle and kiss the princess. And I said, all right, I can make a game out of this. So I, I made a prototype for a game uh, that I called uh-huh. Castle Climbers. And then this coincided, of course, around when I was working for Disney. So I had to set it aside. Um, but uh, not to, a few years ago, when she was around 15 years old, she's a fantastic artist. She's a, I, I come from an art background. My wife is a talented artist. But my daughter is at, at she's now 17, but at 15, she was like still she still is amazing. And um, and so I said, oh, it would be really cool to teach her how to become a professional, what it means to be a working professional artist. So I said, all right, I'll cut you a deal if, um, you know, not not when you're doing schoolwork and, and not when you're in school, but on the weekends or when you have free time, uh, I will pay you to do the art for this board game because I yeah. my prototype was just kind of my goofy cartoons. And, um, and so she said, sure. So I, uh, I paid her a nice rate and she, I commissioned her and had her do the artwork for castle climbers. And, uh, so now that's the version that, um, that I want to put out there. So I, I, you know, I, 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 I love that it kind of comes full circle that she started it yeah. and she kind of, you know, created, helped create it. Uh, and so, and I'm proud of her for, for doing that, having kind of the wherewithal to, to stick to it and do the art. Um, so I want to uh, kind of share that story with the world and, and it's also a really good game. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I'll look forward to seeing that if you, if, and when you, uh, when you get it out. Yeah. There. I mean, that's, there's that's a, really there's cool. a posting for it on board game geek, but, uh, eventually I will, I'm in the process of kind of figuring out like how much it would cost to make and all that. And once yeah. I get that stuff nailed down, then I'll be, um, you know, there's a lot of things that you have to do to get a Kickstarter ready. You have to, get reviews and you have to uh, have copies for those reviewers and you have to create artwork for the site and you have to kind of, you know, create the campaign and it's going to be a lot of work, but um, I kind of figure a lot of other people do it uh, as well. Um, And so as long as I don't colossally screw anything up and I'm well prepared, (laughs) then I could give it a try to. So would that be your first Kickstarter? Did you do Kickstarter for Pantone? Reagan's and rocket ships uh, had a Kickstarter, but I wasn't, I wasn't running it. That was IDW, but I was involved with it. So I, you know, I, I was there in a supervisory capacity. I interacted Mm -hmm. with all the fans. I did a lot of marketing for it. Um, So I, it gave me a really good insight to what it takes to do one and to do one properly. Uh, And, and I also have a lot of friends that have done Kickstarters and some of them I would consider experts in it. Uh, And so I have them to lean on as well. Oh, I got you. Cool. Well, it's been great having you on. Anything else you would mention that you're working on um, that uh, you'd want to mention to our listeners? Nothing that I mean. I have. I I'm always working on prototypes. Um, I uh, I have a game, but I it hasn't been announced yet that will come out in 2020. Uh, so okay. so there's a bit of a wait cool. on that one. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm trying to trying to build a library here. Um, yeah. I don't know. Just follow me on uh, Facebook uh, uh, and uh, oh, uh, Pantone, uh, the game. Uh, it's available on Amazon right now. Uh, it's going to be available at Barnes and Noble stores on the 16th of September. 
So yo, Barnes and Noble is killing it with their board games. Oh, selection. I know they're they're great. I uh, I really like how they uh, what games they stock and how they're yeah. treating board. I think the only thing they really need is to have a more regular gaming space uh, yes. to kind of accommodate. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. buy it and then play it. Right, that kind yeah. of that kind of mentality. Yeah. Um, or play it and then buy it. Yeah, or play it and buy it. Yeah, either or. <laughs> uh, I I would rather they buy it first, but that's just me. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so Barnes and Noble on the sixteenth, uh, Amazon right now. Uh, also at your friendly local gaming store, uh, you can find it or at least have them order it. Uh, mm. And then, um, uh, what else? That's uh, and join 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 the Facebook group and and or or uh, post to Twitter uh, hashtag Pantone the game. Or you can follow me. I'm uh, Mighty Bedbug on Twitter, and then I have a, uh, you know, there's me on Facebook, Scott Rogers. So you know, it's there's I'm out there. I think I'm I just added on, you uh, as a friend, in, Scott. Instagram. I think I'm also on there as well. So. <laughs> I just friend requested yeah. you, so please accept. All right, I will accept. And we'll play games together since yeah, we that'd live be awesome. next to each other. Yeah, Chris and I are going to start a board gaming group in Ventura. So yeah. if you are cool. And you like playing games? Only serious gamers allowed. Well, yeah. So I have a, I have a few. Chris, <laughs> now I have to ask you, how do you feel about Kingdom Death Monster? Because I have a copy, and I've been oh, wanting to play it. I'd play that for sure. Okay, I, I I don't know a ton. I mean, I know it's it's D and D ish. Yeah. You know, miniature heavy, right? Like a lot of miniatures and right, stuff. Right. A lot of miniatures. They are they are a little um yeah. they are a little weird and and sexual, but. Uh, <laughs> So well, just so you that, know. that actually ticked my last box. So All right, we're well, there you go. go. <laughs> All right, good. We'll if it to, is just sexual, we'll have to yeah. then yeah. no. But yeah. if it's weird and sexual, then there you totally. go. Yeah, he's that's, in. That's kind of my baseline, really. <laughs> <laughs> I have a I have a big collection, Chris. I have about 350 games. So, dude, let's do it. I'm in. Ooh, and most, I want to come. And a lot of them haven't been played yet. So come on out, Drew. There you go. Yeah, come, yeah. And, come and visit us in southern, uh, sunny Southern California. Yeah, I make it out there at least once or twice a year. So, All right. uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, we'll do we'll do this. I want to play this weird sexual game. <laughs> um, well, it's not all about sex. It's mostly about cutting parts off of monsters. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> nice. Of course it is. Uh, no, but that sounds cool. Well, uh, thanks so much, Scott. I'll mention a yeah, couple I'm things here for our listeners. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Nerd. Uh, follow us on Facebook at Love Thy Nerd as well. Um, Check us out on uh, lovethynerd.com. We've got great articles, interviews. Um, we've got a lot more tabletop uh, coverage coming up soon, so look for that as well. Um, what else, Chris? We have a podcast network, so go listen to Free Play Podcast as well. Free Play is, um, I mean, it's all kinds of things. They they always talk about a topic, but they also get into kind of some of the things that are going on in the world of Love Thy Nerd. Um, it's it's just fantastic. Just go listen to it and subscribe it. Please rate and review Humans of Gaming and Free Play on uh, on wherever you listen to podcasts. That would help us a ton. And tell people about it on Facebook, Twitter, social media, uh, wherever you do social media. Um, and uh, that's basically it. I'm Drew Dixon, 82 on Twitter. Chris is not on Twitter, but you can follow him on Facebook. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks again, Scott. Oh, my pleasure, guys. You have a good one. <laughs>